Girl, I am a woman living in LA. All we do is talk about fantasy life, fantasy objects. What would I do if I won the lottery? What would I do if I didn't have to work anymore? You know, like we're really well versed in this. So imagining different futures is always something that I'm thinking about. Hey y'all, this is Maya and welcome to episode one of Femme Futures, a podcast where we have very real discussions about possible futures for women's healthcare. Designers call imagining what if futures speculative design. We make fictional objects like props from a sci-fi film. The point of these designs is to give us something tangible to respond to, an artifact from an alternative future that we can touch, wear, play with, and debate. But this type of practice often shows up exclusively in museum exhibitions, academic institutions, and long-ass papers that no one has time to read, very removed from the concerns of the actual people these ideas affect. The first voice in this podcast, that was Sparrow. Girl, I am a woman living in LA. One of today's guest collaborators, and that was her response when I asked her if talking about alternative futures was new to her. In each episode of Femme Futures, I host designers and the women their projects impact to have conversations and imagine what if. Let's think of this space as the revamped, less vaginal version of feminist gatherings from the women's movement of the 60s and 70s. Trans women and non-binary folks, welcome. Imagine we're all sitting shoulder to shoulder on the floor, sharing experiences and designing alternatives to the current models of women's healthcare. On today's episode, we're talking about the design project Toxic Love. Toxic Love is an idea for a new form of women's health technology called collective protective clothing. That's a mouthful. It is a line of gear made to protect the gynecological health of female beauticians and cosmetologists who experience unwanted miscarriages, menstrual irregularities, and uterine fibroids as a result of exposure to toxic hazards in their workplaces. Toxic Love is a provocation tool, not a set of finished products. It is designed to stimulate a discussion on how women's gynecological health is not just fixed, but tied to factors like a patient's environmental, social, and cultural situation. Now, full disclosure, I am the producer and host of Femme Futures and the designer of Toxic Love. While I chose and organized the women in this episode, I see my role here as generating rich conversation with multiple points of view, rather than crafting a story about one solution. Before we welcome our guest collaborators, I wanna talk a little bit about the inspiration for this project. Toxic Love is inspired by the women's health movement in the 60s and 70s, where radical feminist groups were designing alternate methods, systems, and tools to take control of their bodies and out of the hands of body jails, a very unsettled nickname for the American healthcare system. Many of these groups that operated on the fringes of the medical establishment approached women's health with the perspective that the female body is not fixed, but is tied to environmental and social factors. They urged the medical industry to consider that women's experiences, not medical textbooks or other types of expertise, are the best repositories of knowledge about women. Black feminist groups like the Cahombahee River Collective focused on the multi-layered texture of women's lives as related to health and connected the seemingly objective realm of biomedicine to the social contexts in which it emerges. I share this history because Toxic Love hopes to extend the traditions of these ideas. All right, let's get into it. If you could just introduce yourself with your name, your background, what you do, and how long you've been doing it. Uh, My name is Sarah Khan. I'm a contract sewer and fabricator. My name is Sparrow Fox. I am a hairstylist, uh, primarily a colorist, and I've been doing this work for 
uh, decade. <laughs> uh, my name is Laura Adler. I'm an environmental toxins expert and educator. My name is Michelle Miller-Fisher. I live in Providence, Rhode Island. I'm originally from Scotland. I'm a museum curator, a writer, and an educator. And I'm really interested in the way that material culture shapes our lives. And at the moment, a project that is really capturing a lot of my time and interest outside of work um, is uh, Designing Motherhood, which is an exhibition, a book and a series of public programs um, to look at um, the arc of human reproduction through the lens of design. So the choice or lack thereof to um, have a child um, right the way through pregnancy, birth and postpartum. Um, so looking at the designs, the objects and systems that shape our worlds. And our argument is that far from it being a a women's issue um, or uh, can be siloed along gender lines of any kind or uh, race, uh, socioeconomic, class, etc. It is a universal experience to be born. This is how we all get onto this planet. And yet um, each one of those experiences is deeply affected by one social location. And so um, we are interested in that. Uh, intersection between the universal and the unique um, and the ways in which design really shapes um, all of our experiences around birth. Why I really wanted to talk to you is because you do have this, your project is also thinking about this perfect balance between the universal and the unique and how often we don't think about the unique and we don't think about context. And so my project is super contextually specific for that reason. Biomedical, to your, to your point, is, is the universal, and then there's the unique. And the unique is very much driven by uh, our environment, literally our like occupation, our physical environment, air pollution, uh, our environment, meaning culture and socioeconomic class. And so my project was an attempt to find a really specific example of that by using uh, occupational hazards and environmental toxicity to like, get at one nugget of that. To start off the conversation, I shared with all four women the two clothing items from the Toxic Love line, the Toxic Trio Collar and the Filtration Underwear. I got to meet Sparrow on her doorstep in Los Angeles to hand deliver the clothing items. She lives right up the street from me, while the rest of the women only got to see the items digitally. I love the collar. It gives me uh, RBG vibes, which helps me feel even more protected. The Toxic Trio Collar is a chemical tracking neck collar worn by a collection of women. When the device detects levels of toxicity that reach an unsafe threshold for the female body, the collar alerts not just the wearer with a red light, but all of the women wearing the collars so they can collectively work to reduce exposure. The filtration underwear is a one-piece made up of a respirator mask with a personal filtration system that is attached to a pair of underwear. You can see photographs of the items with more details on the Instagram account at toxiclove.la. The first question I asked everyone was, what were your initial impressions of toxic love? Here are Sparrow and Laura commenting on the toxic trio collar. The construction is really interesting and modern. And um, I kind of like, it's got a little bit of like a corsity vibe, which I really like also. <laughs> There's just, I think the, um, the way that these, I don't know what these are, hooks, these hooks are set up reminds me of like how a corset would be the aesthetic is 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 cool it's kind of punk rock it's kind of um a little you know bondage inspired perhaps here's sparrow on the filtration underwear and i like that little bit of a uh not not quite leather but it's almost like lingerie but something that you would wear outside which i like <laughs> so i really like that Next, Sparrow builds on her comments around the lingerie vibe of the garments. 
I think especially if you're looking at like how hairstylists tend to be really creative and um, use their exterior for their self-expression. Um, I think that this is, this speaks to my people. <laughs> I work, I, I'm grateful. I work in an industry that is super open um, for gender expression, sexual expression. Um, I work with a lot of my clients are sex workers and um, queer women who are really body and sex empowered. And so, and that also tends to be like who my friends are. So um, I, I'm sure there are people who are hairstylists who are more conservative that would just like balk at what I'm saying. But I think for, you know, my circle of uh, fellow stylists and also friends and clients tend to be really open minded about and really uh, inclusive around sexuality being a part of daily life and seeing this as a, you know, a form of who doesn't want to feel sexier in their day? Sarah and Michelle's initial reactions had nothing to do with the visual look and feel of the garments, but instead were struck by the duality present in the context I chose to talk about gynecological health, the hair salon. Going to the salon is an activity that's normally framed as leisure or self-care, but for the employees, it's actually one that has extreme gynecological risks and requires protection. Here's Sarah. I just think that there's like almost like there's like a duality going on um with how uh the the cosmetics and like going to get your hair done or like your nails done is like a leisure thing but then we're also talking about like people being in mortal danger because of that too i think the fact that i normally like make leisure wear is like it um i mean it's important but like it has a uh, significance in like what we're talking about so i normally make clothing for people to uh feel good in and look good in and i would be like having to confront different like moral and ethical questions if um the products i made were for uh, people who were going to be wearing them for workwear and also wearing them in dangerous situations. Um, and there's something like heavy and like dark about um, thinking about fabricating protective gear uh, day after day and like in large quantities as well. And here's Michelle with a similar first reaction. Yeah, sure. Well, actually, so I, I mean, I don't want to be obtuse to this, but I have more questions. Um, so when I'm looking at the objects, um, my initial response is like, how did you decide to design very specifically for this population and in this, in this way? So you're looking at um, female identifying aestheticians um, and beauticians. And um, I think, I mean, one of the... Um, news series or articles that have stuck with me for the last couple of years was when the New York Times, and I forget the name of the reporter, I should absolutely name check her, um, but she was fantastic, followed the path of um, nail salon workers in uh, in New York. And I was so struck. I come from a, I come from a farmland in Scotland. I'd never had my nails done before I came to New York. Um, and coming to the US, a lot of people do indulge in having a manicure or a pedicure. And so it was an interesting space, as you say, one that is um, often framed in terms of self-care for the client rather than care for the worker. 
In talking to Sparrow about her lived experience as a worker, it was super clear she recognizes the need for self-care and gynecological protection as a veteran of the industry. But she offers an interesting perspective on wearing regular PPE versus what toxic love can offer. Um, it impacted my ability to be creative. And there is a thing, you know, there is a relationship agreement as a hairstylist and a guest that you're going to like create this experience for them and make them feel welcome and, you know, entertain them a little bit and um, share stories. I mean, we're in there for the razzle dazzle. It's the whole point of what I do for a living. You know, it's about the external. It's about performing our performing our idea of our best beauty, you know. On the theme of razzle-dazzle, I wish people said that more often, the Toxic Love color palette was inspired by industry standard colors for protective safety gear. For Toxic Love, I looked at the standards as defined by OSHA, which is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and then clearly took some liberties. OSHA also recommends designing high contrast and high visibility into protective garments. The use of this color palette and high contrast was not just to make the wearer visible, but to make visible all of these ordinarily unseen forms of violence against women's bodies and gynecological health. The idea of purposefully designing visibility into women's health technology is a big contrast from most designs for women's health, which have a lot of shame and stigma associated with them. Let's think about it. Period apps live hidden in our phones, tampons are passed under tables, and maternity clothing was initially designed to hide pregnant bellies. A bit tangential, but Michelle offers a really interesting history on the evolution of visibility in women's pregnancy garments from her book, Designing Motherhood. There's this arc which goes uh, through the first sort of 60 or 70 years of the 20th century in the US and beyond, where, as you say, to have a pretty pregnancy, which was the tagline of Page Boy, another maternity um, uh, company that came out of uh, Texas in the 1930s, Dallas, Texas-based company, uh, you were meant to conceal, you were meant to have a tented top, you were meant to have um, a, 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 a waistline or something that could expand with you and sort of conceal by keeping you in some kind of cylinder shape, the larger you grew. Um, and then women started saying, fuck that shit. <laughs> I don't really care to do that. Um, and I don't care to feel ashamed. Next, she situates my garment within this history. And so your project sort of comes at the arc, the other end of the arc of that long century, where it's gone from um, the needs of a natural change in people's bodies to do with their reproductive health, not needing to be hidden anymore, and the refusal of it being framed by somebody outside of one's own body, and deciding that one will take agency for how that can be framed through um, garments and accessories. Laura offers a different take on the concept of high visibility and contrast built into the toxic love garments. Whether it's specifically women's health and endocrine disrupting chemicals or what have you, or just the broader topic of environmental toxins, this is very much like a hidden problem. Um, it's not like you can't see environmental toxicity in somebody like you can see acne on someone's face or weight gain around their middle. Because the effects are very often subtle, it can take 10, 20, 30, 40 years for symptoms to manifest. And so that lag leaves this topic sort of under the skin, um, figuratively and literally, right? Um, and, and so 
what I, my first impression of this garment is like, well, this is kind of a cool, provocative way to spark awareness and to spark conversation um, about a problem that most women likely don't know anything about, let alone think about. And through that lens, I think they, 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 they serve that purpose. So to Lara's point, these garments just being fabricated is in itself an act of creating visibility differently than let's say gaining awareness from reading materials. These garments offer a different method of increasing our understanding of these invisible forms of gynecological harm. Michelle takes this idea even further. She thinks that these garments don't only bring visibility to an underrepresented topic in women's gynecological health, but could also instill a new level of respect for this type of employee for the harm they subject their bodies to. Here's Michelle again. Last thing I wanted to say, because it's, it's, I mean, I, I don't think it's a lost cause, though, in terms of these um, garments. I do think that when you go into um, a doctor setting, especially when you go into a hospital just now, you see the um, PPE that they're wearing. And I mean, at least I do. I, I respect that they're doing a job to keep me safe. So to respect them because they're wearing this particular outfit, so you know, whether it's the, the extra face guard they have on or whatever. And much like, I think it was Sarah Near, the article um, in the New York Times that talked about the really radically unequal pay structures that um, um, uh, estheticians, especially people doing manicures and pedicures in New York, uh, were experiencing. I now can no longer go for a manicure or pedicure unless I give 100% of a tip and make sure that I know that that tip is going directly to the person that I um, am being treated by and that I understand very, very clearly. That the, And there was, I think, a sort of a, a moment where a lot of people, like that was able to change the needle. So I wonder if there's a way that your garment, and it does through its communication design aspects, can rethink the paradigm of what is being given and what is being received in a in a in a, in a beautician's or an aestheticians um, relationship to recode it as a space of respect because they're dealing with chemicals that can hurt the person as well as them um, and that uh, the the rising awareness of that can be beneficial for yeah reframing that ecosystem or paradigm the catch here though is who is on the inside and who was on the outside of understanding what the garments are making visible. While a doctor's protective gear performs safety and generates respect between doctor and patient, Sparrow brings up a different framing. As a hair colorist, she's particularly interested in the gear making visible the gynecological dangers of these toxins to her coworkers, but that visibility not necessarily extending to the patrons. In talking to Lara and Sparrow, both pointed to a need for nuance through the idea of visibility. It raises the questions, visible to whom and concealed from whom, here's Sparrow. Right. Well, so it's a mixed bag, right? Like you want to wear the thing that's going to protect you. You also don't want to freak out your clients and make them think that the environment is not safe and impact your business and your ability to generate income, right? And also it raises the question of, do you talk about it at all? Like maybe it's just fashion and I've adopted some cool new cyber vibe or something, you know, like, <clears throat> I don't know, it's really complicated because you only can do this work if you have guests. And um, if you freak your guests out, <laughs> they're not going to come in. <laughs> Here's Laura. And so from a practical standpoint, um, I think 
getting everybody in re- in real life situation, getting everybody on a, in a salon on board with saying, hey, we're going to wear these outfits that are calling out ingredients that are in the products that we are willingly using on our customers and exposing ourselves to is a big ask. It's a big ask. Yeah, I think ultimately that would be the goal, right? Is for every, not everybody to understand what it's for or what it's doing. Like, it's sort of like... Um, you know, even within groups of women, there are secret languages um, amongst women, you know? So like in a salon that is full of hairstylists, this would be probably part of the, the secret life of hairdressers is that doing this work is requiring you to uh, gird your loins with protective gear. Sparrow brought up a really interesting idea of making these gynecological dangers visible purely for the employees, a secret language as she calls it. But outwardly, the protective gear is disguised as a uniform of self-expression and creativity. The collar was also specifically designed to be used by a collection of hairdressers rather than as an individual tracking device. Here, Sparrow again expanding on the way the toxic trio collar alert system could work with more specificity as a secret language between hairdressers. Well, where I work right now, I mean, one opportunity there is like everybody's in their individual suite. If somehow within that system, the ducting was different so that, uh, you know, I think that's one of the problems with where I work is the ventilation isn't really appropriate for the type of chemical services that we do. And my studio is 100 square feet, so it's quite small. Um, so I think about like having that alert is either like to put everyone on notice to turn up the volume with, uh, the air purifying system or, you know, something to that effect. I would say if, if you're in a collective environment in a salon with multiple stylists, I think there's an opportunity there for something very similar in addition to, uh, perhaps opening windows or doors and getting, uh, fresh air from outside moving through the space. So just so there's some kind of alert that there is something that needs to be tended that's happening chemically. Yeah, especially when it's cold, you don't want the doors open. And also, you know, temperature affects how these chemical processes turn out. So it's a big part of it. Like you need a certain level of warmth for bleach to work properly. If the room is ice cold and air is moving through, two things are happening. The bleach is getting dried out and it's cooling off. So it's not going to process properly. So it's like, how do we tend the process and get the result that the client is paying you for and also tend the environment and our health? Laura reframed the toxic trio collar, not as a long-term collective solution as Sparrow offers, but as a tool with a purposeful, but short-term duration. If that short-term use of a monitoring system, whether it's a fashion garment or a, um, a, an air quality, you know, device that's sitting in the corner um, or that's sitting at everybody's station, if, if it's going to sh- serve this short-term purpose of kind of um, slapping people awake to the degree of risk, great, excellent. 
And my hope as an educator is that those people will move very quickly into the anger stage of grief and go, what the fuck? Why are why has nobody told us about this? Why did my cosmetology uh, school not educate on this? Why did you know, um, why are these ingredients allowed in these occupational settings? Um, and, and why is no one telling us about that this and and so that to me is where I see the power of something like this is that it's a, a short term um, provocative and, and clever way to kind of slap people in the face and wake them up. You know, to me, it's, it's like a, you know, the red light that comes on when somebody, you know, is in a dark room, whatever. I don't know why I'm thinking of my photography days, but you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a red light, it's a warning light that comes on it forces people to confront a reality that otherwise they don't think about. While toxic love is meant to offer a model for a new form of protective gear for women that imagines how feminist peer-to-peer support networks can be translated into a technology, Michelle throws a wrench in this idea, rightly so. Commenting on how difficult any sort of collective action is without other forms of protection in place. The thing about peer-to-peer networks that are feminist in nature and collaborative, um, I come across that a lot in labor organizing. So I'm very um, active uh, and uh, uh, very much a fan of unions in my um, uh, work sphere, which is quite an unusual thing actually for museums and in the art world. So MoMA has had a union for a very long time. So I was part of a union there, but it's only been the last two and a half, three years that museums more generally have had unions. Now, lots of thoughts about that, but uh, many conversations have been specifically feminist because those types of um, union can only exist through peer solidarity and organizing together collaboratively. And so the, the that as a model is something that I feel is actually useful to bring into the design space. However, when we're thinking about something that would be, as you're saying, with the collar, uh, a signal that would go between many different people and it would call upon people to act in solidarity, there have been many instances recently in the art world and beyond where people have acted in solidarity and then all been fired. So um, collaboration in design has to be fundamentally underpinned by people who have privilege willing to change the systems before such design should be used. Michelle really gets at the nature and use of design speculation beyond the objects themselves. Toxic Love imagines a plausible new technology design but it also brings up a lot of the intersecting issues that contribute to women's health dangers in salons that can't be solved through a designed object. Toxic Love proposes a new form of protective gear, but it also exposes gaps in FDA regulation, toxins research on women's bodies, gaps in gynecological care, gaps in employee safety practices, and gaps in women's health design. So I asked these women, where's the next thing we do in this project? What would you change? Here's Michelle on that note. Think about the systems that underpin this at the most macro of levels. And what you need is a union, which makes the case then if you have care duties that you have to do in the middle of a pandemic, you have a system that then stops you from having to do two jobs at once. And a, a union will also help you do have things like you know family leave or care leave that you need. And so that's a very abstract response to your question. I would evolve your project by actually sort of saying, okay, here's one way in, much like the design motherhood project is what like it's a book i mean it's it will be around for as long as people read and have libraries and so it will have some addition to the historical record but we talk constantly about it being something that we can then connect to the labor organizing that we do or the other types of policy and advocacy 
So what are the policies and the things that you can advocate for that this can be a lens into? So I don't know that it's about evolving the actual artifact, because I think in many ways it does exactly what you need it to do at the stage it is at right now. I think it is about saying, okay, what has this process taught me about um, the advocacy that is needed around policy and change um, or around legislation or around like at, at, at very regional, local, like micro levels. Here's Laura coming at it from a more practical perspective. I look at it through the lens of like, well, wow, if it was a functional tool, if it literally was, it would need to be measuring urine um, metabolites of these chemicals. It would need to be measuring blood levels of these chemicals, which obviously those garments are not intended to do. But that's how you monitor um, the, the, the real exposure risk. Yeah, no, I'm happy to kind of flush it out a little bit more. I mean, I think, you know, look, in an ideal world, and this technology doesn't exist, but um, this technology exists in terms of um, uh, blood sugar monitoring. So they have um, continuous glucose monitors, which people that have diabetes or hypoglycemia or other blood sugar issues um, will wear. It's a wearable device that is constantly monitoring the level of sugar in your blood, blood sugar. Um, now, if such a product were to exist for to measure not just sugars in your blood, which is quite simple, but to measure um, endocrine disrupting chemicals in your blood at a continuous level so that you're not having to be in it. This is where the, the, you know, the clinical setting and the salon setting butt in. You, you're going to bring a research scientist into the salon. I just think it would be cool to, um, like turn up the intensity on some of the language. I think that it could um, be interesting to be like, well, what would this look like if it was like used? Or like, what would, what would this respirator thing look like if it was like thrown away in the trash? Like would the back of it be like completely blackened, you know? Or like, you know, would that create, would that like spark different, um, a different take on it? Sparrow wants one for every day of the week. I mean, all the things that are so aesthetic, right? Like color options. And, you know, I understand the choices that you made. They make sense. And I think if this is something that is going to be integrated into somebody's life, we love to match and we love to have our personal aesthetic color that we love and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, size inclusivity is important. Laura builds on how the concept of women's collective protective gear could translate to other occupations. I look at the occupations that are, that are, you know, little toxic hot boxes. So anybody who works in the airline industry, major toxic chemical exposures um, for flight attendants, for pilots, interior of your aircraft, highly toxic to the thyroid. Specifically women's health related though. Well, so, but but thyroid is women's health, right? Because a, a reduced thyroid function in women can lead to fertility problems. It can like it, it, that, that in and of itself, anything that is, so a thyroid is, is part of the endocrine system. And so anything that interferes with hormones and the endocrine system that is hormones, anything that interferes with hormones has the potential to affect women's health. It has the effect, uh, ability to affect um, uh, reproduction, um, fertility, um, your child's health outcome, the risk of um, autism in children. Like there's, it's just kind of never ending. Um, I would also say specifically like the um, uh, house cleaning industry 
right? This is this is extra layered because the house cleaning industry is dominated by uh, women of color, right? And 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 women of color who are lower income, and so they have less access to healthcare, and in many populations have higher rates of some gynecological issues. So black women, for example, not because of house cleaners specifically, this goes more to the beauty side, um, have higher, uh, much higher rates of, of things like endometriosis and uterine fibroids. And that's partly because of the way that the beauty industry markets products to them. They market, you know, hair products that have a human placenta in it, which is like just pure estrogen. Um, they market vaginal douche products that have um, phthalates, which are a synthetic estrogen and endocrine disrupting chemical. Um, and there's all of this inherent racism that just exists in, in those products that just is just, just really terrible. So much of why I designed this protective gear was feeling the need to confront the fragmentation of the female body in gynecological care. Laura expands on this, noting all of these other industries and contexts that have a high risk factor for gynecological health that aren't discussed and are deeply tied to the social context in which women live and work. In the gynecologist's office and in women's health design, women are basically reduced to being a cervix, fallopian tubes, and vessels for birth control and lose the rest of our identities. Here's Sparrow and her experience at the gynecologist after working for a decade amongst toxic chemicals. So, you know, I don't think I've ever in my life had a physician actually talk to me. Not, not just a gynecologist, any physician. I have told them what I do for a living and they've never asked for more information or noted it as an area of interest. Um, I have had reproductive health issues most of my life. Um, I am not able to have children at this point. I couldn't, I mean, as of, I would say maybe 15 years ago, I found out the likelihood of me being able to have children would be nil. Um, I've had issues with my cycle. I, most of my life, um, up until maybe last year, because I think I've entered perimenopause and things tend to get pretty regular about that time. So it was very, uh, cursory and here's your medication this is what this means. Not let's talk about what you're doing. Let's talk about like the, the full lay of the land around your life and what you're engaging in. Here's Laura on why this falls through the cracks in gynecological care. Yeah. So it's, it's falling through the cracks in a major way. So the first piece that's important to understand to explain why this is, is um, although research into environmental chemicals has been happening for centuries, really, um, or at least a century, um, our, under, our understanding of the chronic daily exposures, sort of what's called background levels of exposures that we're all just getting just by like being on earth, um, that research is, is relatively new in the grand scheme of things. It's really only a couple of decades old. And it's important to, to know that at least in terms of medical practice, there is a 15 to 20 year lag between what comes out in the scientific literature and what makes it into standard of care practice in the clinical setting. And so your average medical doctor, gynecologist, whatever, is practicing 15 years, 15 to 20 years behind what the current research says. To end with a bang, Michelle says, well, if gynecologists aren't discussing it, designers can pick up the pieces. Design, and we say this again with Design Motherhood, but design is everything. 
most designers start off because they sort of want to take a kind of Hippocratic oath, almost like a doctor, is to do no harm, to really do good. Like I, 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 the designers as a population of people, I think, are incredibly ethical and thoughtful people, at least when they're starting out. From many of us are in in life in general, but I really think that time and investment is necessary, and it's the same time and investment that you would have in a medical career because it has the same kind of effect. So my, so yeah, a lot of the, the design decisions I've made in this project and how it's presented and how I've included women has been very much tied to like feminist work from the sixties and seventies. Um, and so in the spirit of feminism, I would love to end with you just rattling off or listing off a couple of resources related to your expertise on this topic that I'm going to include in a segment at the end of the podcast. Yeah, that's a great idea. So, I mean, taking back to the 60s and 70s, it reminds me of those conversations we started at the beginning of our um, hour around intersectional feminism. And so I think uh, as a, a white woman, one of the best resources I have is my ears. So shutting up and listening. And so um, I I do think that I I enjoy the, the, the resources that I have access to being able to put them towards uh, in, in, in real sort of monetary donations to um, uh, places like Maternity Care Coalition, where I know that work is being done um, for uh, birthing people of all kinds um, and all uh, social locations, but often very low income and often um, uh, black and brown women identifying people in a place that I have lived and cared deeply about. So I think being able to find um, a a very local resource that has had a long tradition of offering um, uh, very, very substantial support to folks um, is a good place to um, to make sure that resources continue to exist. So I think the, the notion of listening and amplifying is, is really important. Um, in terms of sort of more concrete resources, I don't know. I mean, I think we share a lot on the Designing Motherhood Instagram. And so um, that I do feel is a good resource, actually, because it comes from a lot of different people's perspectives. Um, and I don't know, the, the other um, resources that we've loved actually for our project has been the Welcome Collection um, in London. So much of their um, collection is digitized and available online. And so it's very easy to find uh, lots of long histories of um, medicine in general, but specifically feminist histories of medicine or anti-feminist histories of medicine too are on there. So it's good to know both sides um, and to know where not to design. Um, and then the Schlesinger Library um, at Harvard is a really fantastic resource in terms of, I mean, it's not open just now, but um, when you can get in there, it's such a fantastic place for women identifying people's history, especially in the US. And so that is a space I, I identify primarily as a historian. And so being able to know these histories, I think history is the biggest and best design tool that you can have in your arsenal, because once you have like a very, very uh, uh, rich sense of how things have happened, you know which parts you want to repeat and which you do not. The one that comes top of mind for me is Women's Voices for the Earth, which is a nonprofit organization. They've been, they've been around for a couple decades at least. Um, and they, as their name sounds, they are a champion for women's health. And they do a lot of work around environmental chemical exposures. They've done a lot of um, uh, campaigns on uh, getting companies that create products around women's health, tampons, um, douche products, all of these feminine care products, um, and getting them to um, disclose 
ingredients um, so that there is more transparency in this space. They've done um, uh, reports on the uh, uh, racial disparities of expo- that exist within um, environmental uh, chemical exposures around products like hair dyes and, and, and douche products that I mentioned earlier. I think about like ways of dispersing information that are really helpful for women who are interested in sort of like I have to be really straight up with you. I don't really know what straight women do. I don't know where they go. Goop. I, maybe is that straight ladies seem to really like Gwyneth Paltrow and her goop thing. Um, for me, like when I'm receiving, I don't know. I don't mean that in a rude way. I just really don't know. Cause I don't move in those circles. Uh, for me, uh, fembot mag is really important way of receiving information. Also auto straddle. Fem futures is a podcast where we have very real discussions about possible futures for women's healthcare. Thanks for joining us this week to listen to women just talk to each other about important shit. Femme Futures is created and produced by myself, Maya Friedman, and this week's episode features Sparrow Fox, Sarah Kahn, Michelle Fisher, and Laura Adler. The podcast acknowledges while our guests come from a mix of backgrounds and experiences, there's underrepresented opinions here that can hopefully be addressed in future versions of this podcast. The music is by the talented Alex CS, and thank you to my audio engineer and vibe guy, Wes Hutchinson. Talk to y'all next week. I think that was good. That was chill.